0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 34, Psalm 34, open up your Bible to the middle of the book, find the Psalms, and then you can turn to Psalm 34. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, it's in the bulletin. It's also, there is also a Bible probably in front of you, and you're welcome to use that one as well. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that with you if you want as our gift to you today. Psalm 34. We're continuing in our series on the the nearness of God. And this is our third week. We talked about God not being far from us. He's not far from any one of us. Paul says that to a group of Athenians that are literally their whole lives are submerged under idols. There's an idol for everything. And he says, you, you who uh, worship these idols, you're not far from God. And we saw last week that the nearness of God is not just a concept about our salvation, that God is near to any one of us who reaches out to him for salvation, but the nearness of God is for everyday life. We can actually live a life where the rhythms of our day and our walk acknowledges God's presence, and he is near. Today, we're talking about the nearness of God in our pain. And this was scheduled some weeks ago, not knowing what a painful week it was going to be this week internationally and for many personally I know because you've told me that this has been a painful week and yet in God's providence we have here before us talk about pain when I say pain I mean it in the classic sense the wrestling of the problem of pain that we experience pain suffering Hardship, sometimes bodily pain, sometimes emotional pain, sometimes physical pain, sometimes relational pain. And we wonder, what is God's plan in all of that? What what does he do for that? How do we relate to God in our pain? And so we're going to look today at Psalm 34, which on the surface seems like a very bright and uplifting psalm. It's about blessing the Lord, about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, is the classic verse from this psalm. And yet, as the inscription right underneath the psalm tells us, this is about a time of very, a lot of turmoil in David's life. A complicated context that we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. But basically, the sum of it is that David escapes from a tumultuous situation, and then in reflection on that time, of craziness in his life and the pain that he experienced in several different contexts. He writes this song of praise and so it is a gift to us. It's a gift to the church as we wrestle with, how is God close to us in our pain? And he writes this beautiful ode to that, which is very well done. It's actually an acrostic. It's the second acrostic in the Psalter, meaning that each of the sections is the start of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, all the way down. It starts with this letter, which means that it was carefully composed for us, for the church to see God's nearness to us. So let me read it for us Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast to the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days? that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Amen. Most of you know, we were traveling uh, this summer for several months, and uh, we landed in Arkansas, which is where my brother lives, and we're staying with he and his wife for a few days. And one of the days, uh, we were out um, hiking, and we found a lake that we wanted to hike around. Uh, it had a, a concrete path around the whole lake, a couple miles, just two and a half mile, three miles of a hike around this lake. And so we started out hiking. And the, the grown-ups were walking, but my kids had their, their scooters with them. And so they were scootering uh, on the path. And the, the way, just the way that it was set up, the, we started out on a little bit of a decline. There was a little bit of a hill. And um, as we started walking down, the kids were able to go fast on their scooters. And, uh, and we got to the bottom of that, and it kind of leveled out and was straight for a while. And one of my sons uh, said, I wish we had another hill uh, to go down. And uh, my wife, Becca said, uh, don't worry, I'm, I'm sure that, that we'll have another hill uh, on this, this hike. And so sure enough, a few minutes later, the path started back up and in an incline and we started to breathe a little heavier and our calves started to you know, tighten up a little bit and we started back up this hill. And Becca said to my son, look, I told you we would find another hill. And he looked a little disappointed as we were kind of moving up this hill. And he said, yeah, but this one's going up. (laughs) That is the nature of hills. Um, They do go up and they go go down and it is painful. And when you're on that part of the hike or when you're in that hard thing, the questions start coming. Why why am I doing this? Might be one of them that you have when you're hiking, especially. Um, You know who put me on this path and i'm i'm beginning today with a little bit of levity because we're going to to take a hard turn right now as we talk about the real pain that we experience as christians and i know that going uphill is something that many of you are experiencing right now you are you are suffering you are hiking uphill you are Disappointed, You are uh, suffering. You are wondering about your relationships. Some of you are in physical pain. Some of you are in the pain of uncertainty. And there's a feeling like on this walk, like, why am I doing this? And, and who is in control of this? I know that it's true for some of you more, more intensely than others, but I think it's true for each one of us. And when we're in those moments, when we have that feeling of pain, whatever it might be, one of the things that we begin to pray or that others begin to pray for us, it goes something like this. We say, God, in our prayer, will you be near to them? Will you be near? It doesn't stop us, of course, from praying that God would actually take away the pain We also pray for that. Will you heal this cancer? Will you fix this relationship? Will you bridge this gap? Will you provide more income? That pain we sometimes ask to be taken away, but almost in the same breath, we recognize that God does not always do that. And so we feel the need to add that other part of the prayer, which is, and if that's not your will, would you be near to them? Will you be near to me Is that a good impulse to pray for the nearness of God in pain or is it cheap? Let's be real. Let's be honest about this. Does it feel like when we say God be near to me, what we're actually doing is avoiding the bigger question, which is we think in our minds, why is this happening? Why did you put me on this uphill path? And we think that that is the real question. And maybe we can skirt around by saying, well, be near to me at least. Is that a proper worldview and understanding? I think even though that is very natural to do, it actually, there's something behind that perspective that is deeply problematic. Behind that sometimes, Often even is an understanding of the world that's much more quid pro quo, where we feel like we are in this world and we are exchanging things with God. And so there's kind of an unspoken promise that in exchange for following God and believing in him and maybe even saying some evangelistic things to some people sometimes that we can, uh, because we have this relationship with him, that he is going to therefore keep us from pain. And when he doesn't, we wonder if he's holding up his end of the bargain. The question, though, for us is where in the Bible and where in church history do we see those who are free from pain? They're not there. And even though these are real questions, we also know that pain is inevitable. And so I want to talk this morning about why that is a good impulse. And why the nearness of God is actually not a cheap escape from the real question, but is actually the real solution that our hearts want. Here's what I want us to see. The nearness of God is not always an explanation of pain, but it is always the best refuge for pain. The nearness of God is not always an explanation of pain. It doesn't always answer all of our questions. But it is the best refuge for pain. I use the word refuge on purpose twice in this psalm. We're told that God is a refuge in verse 8 and right at the end in verse 22 where it says the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That refuge from the pain is actually the thing that our hearts long for. I want to show you that from this psalm. There's four ways that we can describe that refuge. you start with P. Here's the first one. Protection. The first few verses of the psalm are about God's refuge for us in his protection. It says in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth and at very beginning here we need to qualify what the psalmist is saying I will bless the Lord at all times probably should be better translated something like this I will bless the Lord at every time what he's saying is there in every circumstance kind of like in first Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul says give thanks whatever happens give thanks whatever In every circumstance. It's not as though there's not a second that goes by that David is not continually praising with his mouth. What he's saying is, no matter the circumstance, I can find a way to praise you. And he's saying because he's remembering a circumstance where he was out of his depth. And so the next few verses, verses three through six, tells us what God has done for David and how He promises this for us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I had this experience of God's deliverance. He delivered me. He says that twice. He saves this poor man. Now, what did God save David from? I want to talk about this for a minute because it's important for us to understand God's protection. It's not always passive, and it's not always straightforward. I think sometimes we glaze over when we read words like this, assuming that David is laying on a pillow somewhere with a journal out, um, and you know he's got his, his morning coffee, and he's like, "Oh, my soul was so delivered today." And it just, Seems very beautiful and set apart from real life. But I want to tell you what David is thinking about when he wrote this song, because we're told at the beginning, with this little subscription, that David, this is about the time when David changed his behavior before Abimelech. So that he drove him out and he went away. What is the circumstance? It's a crazy circumstance. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 21. Where David comes to Abimelech the priest, the first Abimelech, and he asks the priest for some food because he's hungry. And Abimelech says the only bread I've got is the bread of the presence, which is the bread that the priest baked every day, stayed in the tabernacle. And so he gives him the bread of God's presence. Remember that. It's going to be important in just a minute. But he also gives him something else. He gives him the sword of Goliath. The giant who he killed and he cut off his head with his sword. And somehow this sword has come to Abimelech as part of the priesthood. And he gives it to David because David is running from his life. He's He's running for his life. He's tired and he's hungry. And he's running from Saul. And he's in real danger. Just in the next passage after this, Abimelech, that same priest, is going to be killed for aiding David. He and all the priests. They're going to be killed, but David himself goes instead to Philistia, neighboring country, and he hangs out with King Achish of Gath, and this king hears all these things, and he sees that he's got the sword of Goliath with him, and his servants say, this is, this is David who's slain tens of thousands. And, He's famous for, for, um, for killing people, and so David hears that this, this word is going to Achish, king of Gath, and that Achish is perhaps getting a little nervous to have David around. And so what David does is he literally acts insane. He starts drooling at the mouth and lets the spit stay in his beard, and he marks up the door where he's staying, and he acts like a crazy person, And Achish sees that he's crazy and releases him. He's like, i got enough crazy in my life, so get rid of him. And David escapes. Now that's what's going on when David is writing this. This is the craziest story, right? The circumstances are strange. And and David attributes this to God's protection. Now it's complicated. We actually don't even know if that was a good thing that David did. Sometimes the Bible gives us things. It just reports on things, but it doesn't tell us exactly how to think about them. And so it could be the case that David is writing Psalm 34 because he's like, thank you God for this crazy idea that you gave me to act insane and to escape. Or it could be, we don't know the inner workings of David's heart, but that was a time when he was not depending on the Lord and that he should have done something else that would show his trust in the Lord. I don't know. It's complex. But somehow David moves through it on the other side. He says, thank you for protecting me. Clearly, protection from God does not mean that we are never in danger. David was in danger this whole time. Abimelech, who is faithful to God, the priest, is killed by Saul's men. This protection doesn't mean that everyone is always spared. It doesn't mean that our lives are neat and orderly and nothing bad happens to us. That's the explanation we want. We want the explanation, show me why this hard thing is happening and you are not protecting me, meaning you are not giving me a way out of this completely. But in the midst of that crazy situation, This is what's happening. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. There is the protection of God. Though it doesn't always mean that we stay out of danger. Secondly, is the provision of God. In the next few verses, then David talks about what God provided for him in this context. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then he talks for a moment about this wisdom piece. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, how he gives many days of life. And so David is talking about provision of two kinds. The physical provision of feeding and also the provision of life for many days. And remember the story. When he came to Abimelech in his need, he was hungry and he received literally the bread of the presence of God. It cannot be, of course, that what David is promising here is that believers in Christ will never actually physically be hungry. That can't be true because David came to Abimelech hungry. But what he received is significant. What he received was not a promise that you will never physically be hungry again, but what he received was the bread of God's presence. The nearness of God was his provision. And that's actually the best provision, even though it would seem like what you'd want is an actual physical supply of bread. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What he's saying there is this, young lions, those are, those are crafty and powerful beasts. And they get, generally speaking, what they want, but I have something more significant for my provision. To trust in God is more direct, a more direct way to be provided for than being powerful or crafty. Perhaps another little hint that David wasn't on his best when he was being crafty before Achish, the king of Gath. I received, David is saying, help in real time. Those who trust in the Lord, they have everything that he needs. They need. He provides it. He fills it up. It's echoing what Jesus is going to say later in the Gospels. He says, if you come to me, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. And there were still people then and there's still people now who translate that and say what he is is a physical bread machine. And therefore, if you just have faith, then you will have everything that you possibly want. The crowd that follows him wants him to be that bread machine. But what he is saying is, is that I give myself the bread of the presence I am here with you now. I have incarnated myself in the flesh. I am the bread that comes from heaven. And I give myself for the life of the world. And so if you take of me, eat and drink, then you will always have what you need because you have everything forever. Every good thing is provided by him. Of course, this is not an explanation for why we sometimes want things that we don't have. We constantly feel a lack. But again, the explanation, even though it is desired by us, doesn't always give us the refuge because the refuge is the bread of the presence. It's Christ himself given for the life of the world. And when we have come to Christ, we're going to, in just a few minutes, we're drawing nigh to God and getting the thing that we need the most. The third way that there... God is a refuge is his proximity. In verse 15, told how close God is. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Told God is proximate to us. He gives us his eyes and his ears. Charles Spurgeon said this about this psalm, that this psalm is about how God gives us his tender consideration. That's a refuge. His tender consideration. This is how far it goes. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed and spirit. In our pain, in our brokenheartedness, in our crushing of our spirit, that is when God is the closest. He is proximate to us. And so if you feel brokenhearted, if you feel crushed, God is not far. We're promised that here. And we have to ask ourselves: do we are we able to feel that tender consideration? for our personal needs and the things that are going on for us wherever, whatever uphill climb that we're on right now, because he is the only one who is near enough to understand it, actually to understand it better than us. He's the one who understands all the things that are knotted up inside of us. He understands our fears. He understands our insecurities. He understands our stress. He understands the complexities of what you are dealing with better than you do yourself. And so while it doesn't explain why all the time, why things are happening the way that they are, the nearness of God is a refuge. And So we have to ask ourselves, does pain push us further away from God or does it drive us deeper into his arms? Because he is near. And the temptation that we have is that we can think, well, I'm going to handle this, and I'll deal with this first, and then I'll get my life in order, including spiritually, and I'll start doing spiritual things again. But this passage says that God is near to us when we are brokenhearted. Those, that brokenheartedness, that crushed and spiritness is an invitation back into the presence of God. He doesn't want us to figure it out and then return to him. He wants us to return to him and figure it out together because he is near to the brokenhearted. Fourth, finally, preservation. Again, promises that seem so lofty. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Condemned. These kinds of verses always trouble us because they seem to be promising too much. Is this naive or is it just wrong? Do Christians not get broken bones? Of course they do. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David had more than one broken bone in his pursuit, I'm sure, with Saul. When Scripture gives us these promises and they are all over the Psalms, They are speaking with the confidence of God's care right now and his view towards eternity. His care right now, meaning that God watches over every single bone, similar to the way that we're told that God cares about every, you know, every hair on our head that falls out. He knows what's going to happen to it. That's the level of God's care. It's down to skin, bones and hair, but also with a view to eternity. What he's saying is that God will not let anything essential be overrun. And everything that is broken will be straightened out. Like in Psalm 121 where he says, God will not let your foot stumble there. He won't let that happen. What he's saying there is this. Nothing can bring essential harm to you. Or the way that Eugene Peterson, author and pastor, talked about it is this picture our lives as a being on a boat in the ocean the storms will beat against the boat but water cannot get inside nothing can sink it because god is near a couple of months ago we were uh watching the movie the game it's not a very well-known movie i don't gather but it's from the late 90s and um Michael Douglas, Sean Penn, uh, it's a, it's an intense psychological thriller about a rich, depressed, suicidal man, um, who, who signs up for a game, a game that is going to change his life. And the game is intense. It's a harrowing experience. It is downright painful. He is psychologically tested. And then he is put through the paces and he's out of control. And there's all this pain, psychological pain, as they mess with his head. Physical pain as his body gets hurt and he's endangered for his life. It's dangerous. They even destroy his house. They they do all of these things. And this game is the game that is designed to bring him to face the pain of his life and the pain of his dad's loss when he's younger. And that pain then becomes part of the restoration. I won't give you away the ending, even though it's been like 25 years since it came out. But in the end, that pain leads to his restoration. And I'll tell you, as you watch that movie, what you're thinking is this, especially if you've seen it before. I know the end result is that he is going to be restored but I'm still, not, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm okay with the process. Even though it is the process of the pain that brings him to that restoration. And I think what's behind that is, I'm not sure that I trust these people with their psychological tests and with their understanding of what the game is. Ultimately then, it brings this restoration, but it could have gotten off track. He was healed, he went through the pain, but was all of that necessary and was it worth it? You're basically asking, is it worth it to go uphill in order to go downhill? The big questions of our life, the explanations that we want, is Is it worth it? Is the sunset more beautiful because you hike five miles uphill to see it? Is a movie with a good ending A happy ending, is that worth it? Because we know that it wouldn't be a happy ending without the release of the tension that comes in the middle of the movie and the climax. Basically, is pain part of the restoration, part of the beauty? It is an unanswerable question, even though it has to be true on some level because it is the reality where we live where God is near to us, and we experience this pain. But it has to be true on some level, because we know that we often trade short-term pain for long-term good. When we hike, when we invest, when we go through surgery. The ultimate question then is this. If this is the game, if pain is part of it, however that may work out, and whatever explanation that ultimately is, What matters most is, who's the game master?
1: What are his purposes? What are his outcomes? What are his desires? And what is his posture towards us? Does
0: he care? Does he want the good outcome? And is he powerful enough to bring it? And the answer to that question is yes. If we find that our God is in control of this. We think we want an explanation, and that pursuit is a good pursuit. To go down those long, uh, worn paths of history, of philosophy, why we are here. But ultimately, we know the answer to that. It's that this is a messed up place because of sin that has come into the world and has twisted and broken everything. And it's just a reality, and the Bible does not shy away from it that we will experience that as pain. That life is full of dangers, toils, and snares, and we're not going to escape without experiencing them. We may get off better, relatively speaking, to someone that's sitting next to us, maybe, but our chances of suffering are 100%. And so what we really want, even though an explanation would be nice, we think, but an explanation would be to be God what we really want then is for the pain to end and to have a refuge while it lasts. and that is what God gives us in the gospel in the good news look how the psalm ends many are the verse 19 the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all clearly a promise with a bigger scope than a deliverance from the hand of Saul. Look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Derek Kidner, commentator, says this about verse 22. The whole verse is pregnant with meaning. Which comes to birth in the gospel. It's a fitting metaphor. As the Bible in multiple places describes the pain that we're experiencing right now as birth pain. The groanings of sorrow that come before the joy of new life. And there is sorrow here. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. How does God do that? He does so at great cost to himself. In the death of his son. So that none who take refuge in him will be condemned. He does that at great cost to himself. That he fulfills that promise. And so what's left for us is to believe that the end of the movie, so to speak, is the restoration of all things. That all those who have trusted in him will not be condemned, and everything sad will become untrue. That every tear will be dried, and all the pain will cease. That is the end. However pain is wrapped up in the beauty of that, I don't know. But I know that that is God's promise. God's promise. That's future, but now he gives himself as a refuge for us to take in him. And so we're commanded to take refuge in Christ. He is the only one who knows your pain. He experienced the greatest pain, not just a tortuous death, which he did experience, but the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. And he did that, the scriptures tell us, for the joy set before him for the ending, the joy of welcoming welcoming us into his family, the joy of the ending of suffering that he initiated on that day. And so while we'll spend our lives seeking the explanation, and we should, for the pain, not understanding doesn't prevent us from taking refuge in the only place that gives us relief from the pain. From the God who says, I will protect you. I will preserve you. I will be close to you, proximate to you. And I will provide for you. By giving you myself for the life of the world. Let's pray.